This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week we have Dinosaur of the Day, Brachylophosaurus. It's a fun one to say. Because it's got loaf in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and a bunch of dinosaur news. But as always, we like to start by thanking a lot of our patrons who help us keep this podcast running. And this week we would like to thank Scotty, Megan Dixon, Kessler, Tristan Jules, Grandpa Dino, Rhinosaurus, Morgan Eklove, Dr. Eigenbot, Taylor, and Lori. And Taylor and Lori both separately just joined within the last week and a half. So thank you both very much. Exciting. Yeah, thank you both. Thank you to everyone who supports us. It really means a lot to us. If you want to jump on that bandwagon, check out our page at patreon.com slash Dino. Yeah, we've got more things in the works and some of them cost money. So when you contribute to our Patreon, it really helps us. So thank you. Quick follow-up before we get into the news. <laughs> Last week, Sabrina asked me why monkey puzzle trees are called monkey puzzle trees. I'm surprised you didn't look it up last week. Yeah. I mean, it, it was going to take a little effort. So I found the answer on Encyclopedia Britannica, which I don't think I've referenced since I was doing like a high school essay back when you had to do non-internet sources. That mm. was my go-to. No, it, they have some good articles on certain dinosaurs. Yeah, only the old ones, though. Right. Because it takes encyclopedias a while to catch up. But monkey puzzle trees have been known about for a long time, so they have a good article on that. And apparently they're called monkey puzzle trees because they might be a puzzle for monkeys to climb. Oh, wasn't that my guess? It might have been. The branches are arranged in a quote-unquote prickly network, and therefore, it would be hard to navigate around, potentially. Oh, because it's also hard to see where you're going and you'd have to know because you don't want to get prickled. I think it's just like the branches are in the way, essentially. Oh, okay. So there's your answer. It's a good name. It is a really good name. And it's a cool looking tree, too. They got really tall. I think it said they got up to like 160 feet. So... I could really hinder a monkey. Yeah. But you can imagine how tall a sauropod would have to be <laughs> to get up there. I don't think even the tallest sauropods could reach a fully grown monkey puzzle tree top. But maybe a growing one or the lower branches on one they could get or to. Or something could climb up its neck to its <laughs> head and then it could reach the top of the tree. Maybe. <laughs> you never know. Maybe not. <laughs> but... Jumping into the news, now that we're done with monkey puzzle trees, 
we've got a new largest dinosaur foot ever found and not footprint foot oh was there another one of those pictures where it's somebody lying beside it they kind of missed out on that they used a regular old measuring tape next to it there is a guy in the picture but he's not laying down next to it and i think it's because it's not really taller than him or similar in size oh i guess human those pictures are usually of the femur right yeah which is roughly the length of an adult man Hmm. so it works well and this one also only had a few of the bones so it was there was kind of a big gap in the middle of it but most of the articles refer to it as the largest dinosaur foot ever found i couldn't quite tell if that's definitely true in the paper they call it the largest pez ever reported from a sauropod dinosaur but i don't know i can't imagine a larger animal foot in general Mm -hmm. than a sauropod foot the only thing i could think is maybe some of the really large theropods technically the foot sort of goes part way up the leg the way they look like they're bending their knee backwards that's actually all foot just like dogs do the same kind of thing and they're kind of on their tiptoes So technically speaking, I think maybe like a T-Rex or something might have a longer foot, although by pure surface area of the bottom of the foot, especially the part that touches the ground, Mm -hmm. it's probably the largest foot ever discovered. So in any event, it's huge. It was found in the Morrison Formation, which makes it about 150 million years old. And it was found in Weston County, Wyoming, which is northeast Wyoming, and I was looking for something nearby to the site to name, and it's like sort of near Devil's Tower. It's like a hundred something miles away, kind of <laughs> near the Black Hills. Like there's nothing really close to this. It's in like middle of nowhere, northeast Wyoming, basically. Where the brachiosaurs roamed. Yes, it was a brachiosaur. <laughs> they could tell based on basically the heel bone was the key one that they were comparing to Camarasaur, Diplodocids, and Brachiosaurids because those are the three main ones that are known from the Morrison Formation. And they think that it looks the most like a Brachiosaur. Although, they say it's the first confirmed pedal Brachiosaur element from the late Jurassic of North America. That's surprising. Yeah, considering the holotype is from North America, I guess they've found Brachiosaur other bits in other places yeah it seems weird that they haven't found that in the u.s before but i guess so the foot is almost a meter or about three feet wide and they found the kind of toes next to each other so i don't know if they even hazarded a guess about how long it would be yeah but usually sauropod feet are roughly sort of circular so probably about as long as as it is wide maybe a little bit longer that would be what child size right a meter like a toddler yeah three feet yeah it's like more than half your height yeah <laughs> i'd say larger than a toddler then yeah more like <laughs> i would say like manhole cover or larger sort of size mm. but one of the cool things is it was found in a bone bed and in the bone bed they also found a nearly complete small brachiosaur a small diplodocid and several small camarasaurids but they're all way too small to have this massive foot. So (laughs) the foot appears to be from some other dinosaur, which either there aren't any remains for in the area or have not yet been found. So just kind of isolated foot bones from this monster. That's interesting, though. That's the three types that you just mentioned that are common in the Morris information. Yeah. They all were there. They're all together. (laughs) So for now, it's the biggest foot that we know of. See how long it lasts. 
Yeah, it seems to <laughs> get topped. <laughs> These records get broken quickly sometimes. Yep. Especially if you publish one. There might be some bones lying around that haven't been published. And someone will see this and go, wait, I have a bigger one. Publish <laughs> <laughs> Takes a long time to get published, though. So. Yeah, maybe in another year. Up next, I have an exciting example of a neotype. I'm glad I talked through the differences of these different types of type specimens like a week or two ago. So basically, as a quick reminder, you got a holotype. That's the original named individual of a species or a genus, usually both in the case of dinosaurs. And the thing that everyone compares the new discoveries to? Yeah, it's the official version of that animal. And then you've got neotypes, which are rare, but you sometimes use them when the holotype either gets destroyed or goes missing or is otherwise not good enough to be considered a holotype anymore, when the latter of which is the case in this article. So basically, there's a holotype of Allosaurus fragilis because there's a holotype of everything. This one was named in 1877 by Othniel Charles Marsh, famous Bone Wars Magoo. <laughs> the holotype is from Garden Park Quarry in Colorado, which is also the Morrison Formation, just like that foot we were talking about. And the holotype is called YPM 1930, Yale Peabody Museum. 1930 is pretty pretty old one. It's only got four digits. Mm -hmm. And the entire species description only consists of five bones. There are three centra, which are basically the discs of vertebrae, like we have in our back when someone like slips a disc. It's that little kind of sort of round part in the middle. And then you've got one toe bone and one tooth. And from that, they built Allosaurus. Yeah. So that's officially what Allosaurus is. It's just based on this tooth, toe, and partials <laughs> of vertebrae. So it's really not diagnostic. Just looking at those little things, it's really hard to dig out a new dinosaur and compare it to those little pieces. But the name is really important, which is why people have proposed neotypes actually a couple times now, because they want Allosaurus to stick around. And if the other option is to say, oh, this Allosaurus was named based on these garbage pieces of bone that could be practically anything, and therefore let's get rid of that name and call it something else. Mm -hmm. But no one wants to lose Allosaurus. It's such it's a great name. name. Yeah. So the better option is really to name a neotype before it becomes a big issue. And it's starting to become an issue because now we've got several different species of Allosaurus that have been proposed. And when you have to compare it to this holotype, it's very difficult to talk about subtle differences in, say, the skull when you're basing it on a, a, tooth. Toe, a toe bone, a tooth, and yeah, a couple of vertebrae. It's like, what are you even doing here? So a neotype was proposed back in 1976 by James Madsen, and he used a nearly complete specimen from the middle Morrison formation from a little ways away from where this one was found. I think it was in Utah. Now, it was rejected partly because it was from the middle Morrison formation rather than the lower Morrison formation like the original holotype. And so that means that this one he was proposing replacing the holotype with was millions of years younger. And the average species is only around for about 2 million years. So it can be kind of risky to say like, well, this is the new neotype of that exact animal when it's millions of years apart. And there were also some minor differences in the skeleton compared with other Allosaurus specimens. So people weren't really comfortable with using that, that neotype to replace the holotype. 
Now, another neotype was proposed now eight years ago. <laughs> this stuff moves kind of slowly by Gregory Paul and Kenneth Carpenter. And fortunately, it's based on another individual that was from the exact same quarry. So Charles Gilmore found another Allosaurus in that exact same quarry in Colorado in 1920, which, according to the authors of that paper, complies with Article 75.3.6 of the ICZN code, <laughs> basically meaning that we can be relatively confident this is the same exact species rather than it might be a couple million years younger, and therefore there could have been some changes in ev evolutionarily, and now it's a, a slightly different species. So this new one that they proposed is USNM 4734, which comes from the United States National Museum, now known as the Smithsonian. Oh, I forgot it had a different name, did it? Yes. Yeah, the Smithsonian has sort of been adjusted over the years. The Smithsonian, I don't think, is really officially in its title. I think it just changed national museum got flipped around or something yeah. but i always call it the smithsonian because no one knows what the national museum is this one is also almost complete and it has even been called a paratype really erroneously because it was named 43 years after the original it definitely wasn't named at the same time as the original which is the requirement for being called a paratype but i think it some of these really complete Allosaurus are really what people are effectively using when they find a new Allosaurus. Mm -hmm. They're not going back and comparing it to that original tooth and toe bone and trying to figure out if their dinosaur matches with that. They're comparing it to Allosaurus complete skeletons that are in the literature, which is technically wrong. You shouldn't be doing that. You're supposed to compare every new find to the holotype. That's how you define your new find and whether or not it counts as that species. So there really is a need for picking one of these as the neotype because that's what you have to do. It's just, yeah, it just doesn't work using the actual holotype. Unfortunately, those eight years ago when this neotype was suggested, some questions about it were raised, mostly the cranial proportions. So just the length versus width essentially of the head as well as whether the premaxilla, which is kind of the front of the jaw, was actually correct for that individual or if it had been from some other individual and kind of stuck on because it didn't seem to fit quite right. Fortunately, the skeleton was recently taken off its mount and is being redescribed in the process of being redescribed, I should say. I don't think that's been published yet. And when they took it off the mount for the new Smithsonian exhibit that's happening and they're preparing it and fixing it up, they found that the premaxilla does fit, quote unquote, perfectly with the rest of the skull. And they kind of just like glued it together a little bit wrong and filled in things where they shouldn't have possibly. So that's why the skull looked kind of funny. It just wasn't prepared perfectly. And once you prepare it the way that we think that it should be prepared, it matches perfectly with what other people think it should look like. So it does seem like it might be a really good neotype. Matt Carano and some others recently published an update to this 2010 suggestion saying, yes, let's go ahead with this. You know, we took apart the, the fossil and we got a good look at it and it looks like a really great neotype. So let's make it official. How long till it's actually official? I have no idea. It seems like it takes a while. Maybe, I mean, most of the questions for the 2010 paper were all raised in 2010. 
So I'm guessing they'll wait a little while and see if there are a bunch of questions posed to this 2018 re-suggestion. Mm -hmm. And maybe if nobody complains or if a lot of people say, yeah, let's do it, then it'll, it'll go forward. But we definitely need it because there are lots of species being suggested for Allosaurus. So we need to nail down what Allosaurus really is first, mm -hmm. and then we can start thinking about these other species. Makes sense. Next, there's a cool article that recently described all the dinosaurs being found in China. It was Richard. Oh, man. Yeah. That's a lot of dinosaurs to describe. Okay, this was a small part of okay. it. It was one person's experience, Richard Conniff. Okay, so not all the dinosaurs being discovered. Just in general, what's going on in China. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, he described his visit in China, basically checking out sites and fossils, and it started with a description of a dig in Sihutan, a small village about 250 miles northeast of Beijing. And near the site, there's a new museum. There's so many new museums in China. This one is called Lianning Beipiao Sihutan Ancient Fossils Museum, and it's being built. It's going to open sometime next year. Apparently, it costs $28 million at least for just the construction. Wow. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, it's middle of nowhere. They're expecting visitors to come via the high-speed rail, but that train line hasn't been built yet. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully it's built soon. Museum first, then high-speed rail, then visitors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but this area is where Cenosauroteryx was found in the mid-1990s. A farmer had found it. It was the first known feather dinosaur, and it, they sold one half of it to one museum and the other half to another museum. <laughs> Now, in that area, more than 40 dinosaur species have been found. And it's also the home to two famous sites, Yanliao Biota from the Middle to Late Jurassic and Jehol Biota from the Cretaceous. And those help show the origin of birds and evolution of feathers in flight, which we talk about that all the time, the different kind of feathered dinosaurs coming out of China. Yeah. So there's already 10 fossil museums in Liaoning, including this new one, I think. Or maybe that makes it 11. I don't remember. Holy cow. Yeah. And most of the best specimens, though, are actually in Beijing or the Shandong Tianyu Nature Museum. There's a city, Chaoyang, about 45 miles west of Sehutan that's known for its fossils. And they have a lot of articulated skeletons and slabs. And that shows you a lot of details. There was apparently a lot of volcanic activity and then ash that would have buried the dinosaurs and then preserved their feathers, hair, skin, tissue, organs, and gut contents. Hmm. Yay, good contents. <laughs> yeah, so like, for example, there's a microraptor specimen that was found with a bird in its gut that it swallowed nearly whole. Pretty crazy. So there's a lot of research opportunities with these fossils, but it's kind of difficult because many in the area are hoping to earn money from the fossils. So a lot of the farmers, they're not trained on how to dig these up and they don't record locations or other data from the site. And forgery is unfortunately also a common problem. So there's some Chinese experts who can spot the forgery with their naked eye, which is impressive, but most people can't. They have to use ultraviolet light to see which parts of the specimens are fake. Yeah, because it basically lights up different type of rock, different colors. Mm -hmm. And then if there's a line going right through the middle of the fossil, it's like, oh, you glued the top half of this one to the bottom half of that one. Yeah. Or sometimes it could just be like a resin or something rather than an actual bone. Right. And they used to use these water-based things that would easily wash off, I guess, but they don't do that anymore. Hmm. But there's still a lot of genuine fossils in the Liaoning province, and there's a lot of people that work to prepare them. It sounds like they've got assembly lines in some cases. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah, we heard about some of these museums and just how many fossils they have. 
And a lot of them are prepared. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of effort to prepare some of these. You know, it can take thousands of hours to get through one. But I guess luckily China has a lot of people. Yeah. And they're all <laughs> willing to work on this. I guess so. Well, not all, but a lot of them are. In other parts of the world, in Wales, uh, Cardiff's Butte Park is going to have an interactive dinosaur experience next weekend called Jurassic Kingdom, where dinosaurs come to life. And they'll have Diplodocus, T-Rex, Dilophosaurus, Pachycephalosaurus, and I guess about 30 dinosaurs all over the park, plus a 30-minute BBC short on that'll be um, projected somewhere that visitors can watch to learn more about dinosaurs and an excavation area for kids. <laughs> you gotta have that. Yeah. So you gotta buy tickets and it will be there until August 27th. So if you're in Wales, just check it out. Especially if you want to brush off some fossil bones and pretend you're excavating. I was thinking more of going on a dinosaur hunt where you walk around the park, look for dinosaurs. In Westchester, New York, Lasden Park is getting a bunch of dinosaurs. They also have footprints, plant specimens, and life-size replicas of dinosaurs, including T-Rex, Velociraptor, and Brachiosaurus. And they work to create an app that gives you an interactive experience with the park. So what you do is you scan codes that are in the garden, and then you learn about dinosaurs with... They've got time lapses, and then information about what they ate, and how they lived, and what their home looked like. I think it sounded like an AR kind of experience. Oh, nice. Yeah. So Dinosaur Garden is now a permanent exhibit at the park, so you can check it out anytime. Next, we've got a pretty good dinosaur inflatable costume story. So for anyone who's an American Ninja Warriors fan, that's a show, if you're not familiar, where there's athletes that compete on obstacle courses, and they try to go through these crazy courses in short amounts of time. It's very impressive and pretty fun to watch. And they had a fan favorite, Grant McCartney, who's, I uh, haven't watched this in a while, but he's known for his dancing style. And he does a course in Miami, Florida, where a bunch of dinosaurs swarm the course. They're in the T-Rex and Velociraptor <laughs> inflatable costumes. And they kind of take over, and they're hanging off these rings, and they're climbing up the course. There's a lot of them falling into water, some on purpose, some, I think, on accident. So he's going through the course, and they're, like, chasing him? Yes, and then at some point he leaves the course and they just take over and there's like a bunch in the water, a bunch hanging off of rings, a bunch climbing up the sides, and then he's in the crowd trying to figure out how to get back in. And then he goes to the uh, warped wall, which is, I don't know, something like 14 feet kind of warped and you mm -hmm. got to climb up. And then they, they all swarm him and they pretend to eat him. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, it's pretty entertaining. <laughs> Also impressive that you can do anything acrobatic in those costumes. Yeah, they had one I remember a year or two ago where somebody did the course, or at least a part of the course, mm -hmm. in the T-Rex costume, and it was a super popular video. So I guess they had to do it again. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's hard enough to do when you're not in a costume. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't really do any of it not in a costume. And in those costumes, it's really hard to see. Yeah, it is. That's true. They also tend to deflate when you move too much, and you're doing a lot of moving when you're doing an obstacle course. Yeah. So. Well, I also can't imagine when you fall into the water. Oh, yeah. Like trying to swim in it. Yeah. Yeah, it can be tricky. Or sea or anything. They have those like pull you out of the water people, though. True. So they'll probably be okay. And last in the news, Nine Media has released a trailer for Iron Sky 2, which is also known as Iron Sky The Coming Race. Okay. Bear with me a bit, Garrett. Is this about pterosaurs? No. So the first movie, Iron Sky, came out in 2012. It's a Finnish-German comic science action film, as it's described. 
And in Iron Sky 2, Earth is now being destroyed, and the president of the U.S., who is a reptilian, sounds like <laughs> all the characters are reptilians, is led to something called Hollow Earth and greeted by a reptilian Hitler who's sitting on top of a T-Rex. Okay, that's the person who's going to destroy the Earth? I don't really know the story. I just saw reptilian people and then T-Rex. I think a pterosaur flew past her head at one point. That's got to be what Iron Sky is, right? I don't know. I didn't see the first movie. Okay. I have no idea if there's dinosaurs in the first movie, but there's at least a T-Rex in Iron Sky 2, and it takes place 20 years after the first movie. The description says, quote, the former Nazi moon base has become the last refuge of mankind. Earth was devastated by a nuclear war, but buried deep under the wasteland lies a power that could save the last of humanity or destroy it once and for all. The truth behind the creation of mankind will be revealed when an old enemy leads our heroes on an adventure into the hollow earth. To save humanity, they must fight the Vril, an ancient shape-shifting reptilian race and their army of dinosaurs. So this Hitler character must be a Vril if he has a dinosaur army. Could be, or maybe they somehow got their own dinosaur. I don't know. <laughs> All I saw was the trailer. There's a T-Rex. There's talk of other dinosaurs. I like the idea of an army of dinosaurs. That sounds fun. Yeah. The movie's set to release January 2019, though it's been pushed back a couple times. So we will have to see. Yeah, it's not a great sign that it's been delayed multiple times. I guess we'll have to just watch it and see how good it is. Just focus on the army of dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
And now onto our dinosaur of the day, Brachylophosaurus, which was a request from Janice via Patreon and Dinosaur4602. So thanks. It was a hadrosaurid that lived in the Cretaceous in what's now Montana in the U.S. and Alberta, Canada. They found skeletons and bone beds in the Judith River Formation and the Oldman Formation. And the name means short-crested lizard. It was about 30 feet or 9 meters long as an adult, though Gregory Paul estimated it to be 36 feet or 11 meters long and weighing about 7 tons. And it had a relatively small head, long lower arms, and a wide upper jaw beak that was covered in a sheath. It also had cheeks to keep its food in and dental batteries, and it continually replaced its teeth. Its head was elongated, it was wide at the rear and then narrow along most of the snout, and it had large nostrils and a bony crest, uh, which was flat and paddle-like over the top of the back of its head, and it had a ridge on the midline that was not hollow. These crests varied depending on age. Some covered most of the skull and others were shorter and narrower. Many may have had sexual dimorphism where males had larger crests than females for display. And these crests may have been used for pushing contests for display, though there's not enough evidence to know for sure. Brachylophosaurus was described in 1953 by Charles Mortem Sternberg based on a skull and partial skeleton, and he found the fossils in 1936 in Alberta, and at first thought that it was Gryposaurus. The type species is Brachylophosaurus canadensis, and the species name refers to the fact that it was found in Canada, you might have guessed. Later, it was found that a partial skull discovered in 1922 could be referred to Brachylophosaurus canadensis as well. In 1988, Jack Horner described a second species, Brachylophosaurus goodwini, named in honor of collector and preparator Mark Goodwin, that was found in the Judith River Formation. Though, in 2005, Albert Prieto Marquez said that the differences between the two species were either because of individual variation or the result of the second species specimen being reconstructed with an upside-down skull crest. Hmm, that's weird. Mm-hmm. How do you even reconstruct a skull crest upside-down? It's a weird move. It must have been separated from the skull and then he glued it back on upside down, I guess. Yeah, could be. And then so you, rather than having a ridge down the middle, you'd have it sort of like V-shaped, I guess. <laughs> It'd be interesting. Yeah, I don't really know the story, but a lot of specimens have since been found in Alberta and Montana, though more have been found in Montana now because there was a bone bed found near Malta, Montana, and that has over 800 specimens. 800 specimens? Mm-hmm. Is that like 800 bones, I'm guessing? Could it be 800 individuals? That would be crazy. Must be bones. Still a lot. There's been soft tissues found in Brachylophosaurus, kind of quote-unquote mummies. This tissue is replaced by minerals, so it's the fossil of a mummy, technically. (laughs) Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. But the most famous mummy is nicknamed Leonardo, who is 90% covered in soft tissue and shows that the base of the neck had a lot of muscle and that there were small polygonal scales on the broad beak and a midline frill on the back made by triangular-shaped projections, and also the second, third, and fourth fingers on its hands were in a soft tissue, so it looked like a mitten. Oh, yeah, yeah, we've seen that depicted in other places. That's Mm -hmm. cool. Yeah, Leonardo was found on a bone bed in 2000 by Dan Stevenson, and Leonardo got his name because a graffiti near where he was found said, quote, Leonard Webb and Geneva Jordan, 1917. (laughs) That's funny. Not what I would have guessed. (laughs) Leonardo was a juvenile when he died and was 22 feet or 7 meters long and weighed between 1.5 and and 2 tons and had pebbly skin texture. Also, Leonardo's gut contents were preserved. There were ferns, conifers, magnolias, and pollen from more than 40 different plants. Wow. Yeah. He's eating everything. Yeah, good for him. He also had small needle-like worm parasites in its stomach, though. There's a lot of other dinosaurs that may have also had parasites. 
Brachylophosaurs lived in a wet environment, and mummification usually happens in dry conditions, so it's not clear how Leonardo was mummified. The soft tissues may have been preserved another way before the body decomposed. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, and in 1994 in Malta, Montana, Nate Murphy found a complete well-preserved Brachylophosaurus that he nicknamed Elvis. There's a lot of Brachylophosaurus with nicknames. There's other ones that include Roberta, which is almost complete, Peanut, which is a juvenile with skin impressions, and Marco. And Peanut is on display at the Judith River Dinosaur Institute in Malta, Montana, if you ever want to see what Peanut looks like. Evidence of tumors were found in Brachylophosaurus skeletons in a 2003 study. Tumors may be a sign of inbreeding. Maybe there wasn't enough genetic diversity that led to this increase of tumors, but unclear. And other dinosaurs that lived in the same time and place as Brachylophosaurus include the Ceratopsian Chasmosaurus, the Hadrosaur Parasaurolophus, the Tyrannosaurus Displetosaurus and Gorgosaurus, and the Troodont Trudon. Interesting, even though Troodon is now considered dubious. Yes. And our fun fact of the day was inspired by a British Natural History Museum article written by Emily Osterloff. It kind of goes into the history of dinosauria. And then there are also some other things that I wanted to add to it. So basically, Sir Richard Owen named Dinosauria in 1842, and he named it based on Megalosaurus, Iguanodon, and Hylaeosaurus, which I think we've covered all of before, at least we've mentioned that before. But interestingly, Gideon Mantell named both Iguanodon and Hylaeosaurus, and Megalosaurus was named by William Buckland, although he left off the species name, which Mantell later amended. So Mantell sort of named all three of them that Sir Richard Owen then later lumped together into Dinosauria. But when Owen named Dinosauria, he thought that they were related to pachyderms, which I thought was really interesting. And pachyderms literally means thick-skinned, and it refers to a group of mammals that includes elephants, rhinos, and hippos. At the time, they were thought to be closely related, meaning all these pachyderms were thought to be a group, but it's no longer considered a group, and the term is only loosely used sort of colloquially. It's not used really scientifically anymore because we know more details about how these different groups evolved, and they're not in the same branch of the family tree, really. What I thought was most interesting is this article pointed out how the Crystal Palace dinosaurs kind of have elements of like hippo, rhino look to them. Is it because they're all on all fours? Yeah, and just like the way that the skin kind of hangs off the arms and stuff, they don't really look reptilian all the way. They sort of have this sort of, I don't know, mammalian look to them, the way their body proportions are. And they're proposing that it's because Sir Richard Owen thought that they were related to things like hippos. Hmm. So I thought that was a really good insight that kind of gives us a, a little idea about what the original ideas of what dinosaurs looked like came from. And I also thought it was kind of funny because dinosaurs and early mammals actually were kind of closely related. They weren't that far apart in geological time. They're both relatively early amniotes and their common ancestor is about 320 million years ago. Whereas, you know, the earliest dinosaurs like 240 million years ago. So it's about 80 million years before the first dinosaur. But the funny thing is the dinosaurs that Owen named, especially Iguanodon, It's like Cretaceous. (laughs) So he was naming these dinosaurs and like assuming a connection with early mammals, basically. And it was like closer to us in the time scale. But lucky for him, if you find the common ancestor of these three basically distantly related dinosaurs, 
then you end up with something that is sort of related to mammals. Cool. Yeah. I like the idea that dinosaur just looked like a big hippo with teeth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or well, they didn't teeth. give them anything very colorful. Yeah, they're all just green. Because mm-hmm. they were, you know, it does literally mean terrible lizard. So he knew that they were reptilian and he scaled them based on crocodile anatomy. But then he didn't think they looked like crocodiles because obviously you can tell from the hips that right. they're more mammal-like in a way. So, yeah. The heads aren't very crocodilian, at least those first three either. Yeah, that's true. It's kind of halfway in between a mammal and a crocodile. What a strange creature. Yeah. And those were all based on mostly hips and legs and things. When we started to get skulls and more complete specimens, then, you know, we obviously figured out that they didn't look like hippos. <laughs> Some of them looked very similar to crocodilians. <laughs> True. Especially like spinosaurus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He re- I wonder what they would have thought if they found spinosaurus first. They would have thrown everything off. They probably wouldn't have called it dinosaur anymore. They would have called it like crocodilosaur or something. Dino croc. Terrible lizard. That could still work. (laughs) Could be like terrible crocodile. Yeah. Dino croc. Sure. (laughs) I'll just stick to the name dinosaurs. Yeah. It's a good name. (laughs) And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so that you don't miss out on any new episodes. And check out our page Patreon at patreon.com slash I Know Dino to join our growing community. Thanks again. And until next time. Good day.